This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're looking tonight at verses 10 through 18. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10. Hear the word of God. For it was fitting that he, that is Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, those who are sanctified, all have one origin. Or if you're looking at a more recent ESV, one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being Tempted. Thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask in this uh, evening hour that you would meet with us and that you would speak to us from your word. Grant to us, Father, your Holy Spirit, illumine our minds, warm our hearts to hear what you have to say to us tonight from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Suppose that you went as a missionary to a distant, obscure, little-known land. And as you were going there in preparation, and once you arrived, you made several important decisions about how you would approach your work there. You decide that... Rather than eat native food, you will just import what you're used to eating from the United States at great expense. Rather than live in a hut, you you live in a home, build a home, and live in a home that would be more likely found in the Atlanta suburbs, since after all, that is, of course, what you are used to. Rather than wear local clothing, which happens to be for men and women a Roman toga. You just wear Western clothes, much like what you have on now, which does draw attention and sort of makes you stand out, kind of become known as uh, an eccentric and an oddity in the community. The language is tough. So rather than try to learn that, instead you just instruct them in English 
After all, if it's good enough for you, it should be good enough for them, right? Well, how effective as a missionary would you be? God can work not just through us, but in spite of us. In fact, he usually does. However, you're certainly uh, stacking the deck against yourself by that kind of approach. You know, as you look at the history of missions, you find missionaries who did precisely that kind of approach. Uh, They basically brought their own culture. They set up shop in a way they were accustomed to, and people needed to adapt to them. Now, inevitably, uh, there, are, there is a learning curve for someone becoming a Christian. No matter how much you try to put it in their language and in their context, uh, there is a Christian vocabulary, there are Christian ideas, there are Christian traditions that do transcend culture and structures of Scripture that are odd to people and different. But uh, some of the more successful missionaries, effective missionaries, have sought to... Uh, accommodate themselves a little bit more to those they were seeking to reach. For example, Amy Carmichael, Irish believer of the 1800s, when she went to India, where she ministered for decades without furlough, over 50 years, she adopted Indian dress. She learned the Indian language. She immersed herself in the Indian culture. Hudson Taylor, same century, went to China. He soon... Though he didn't at first, he soon cast off his Western clothing and began to dress in Chinese clothing. And the Chinese respected that. They liked that. They appreciated that. He ate their food and he learned their customs, even though some of his fellow English missionaries kind of looked at him with scorn. As if he'd lower himself in that way. Found that he gained a better hearing among the Chinese. Both... Amy Carmichael and Hudson Taylor and many others have been more effective when they sought to identify with those that they were trying to reach with the gospel. But when they did that, they weren't really being original. They were merely imitating the method of their Savior, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate missionary. Well, as we've been studying in Hebrews, we've seen how the writer demonstrates Jesus' superiority to the Old Testament prophets, that he is the Son, he is the incarnate Word. His his superiority to the angels, regardless of what station they might have, his is higher, what role they might have, his is uh, deeper, uh, what place they might have, his is stronger, all of these things, and The writer of the Hebrews is making a case, as we saw last time in verses 5 through 9 and now here, that his humanity does not in any way diminish his superiority over the angels. In fact, it was fitting for him to become human in order to restore us to the glory, to the condition that God the Father determined that we should have. And his humanity does not diminish his superiority and who he was. Uh, because Christ identified himself so completely with us, not only is he the perfect missionary, but he really is the perfect Savior. Uh, because he was willing to become like his brothers. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is, is talking about here. Uh, he shows how Christ identifies with us, 
He shows the benefits that we receive from that identification in terms of basically three pictures, three images or pictures that uh, he uses to describe this, this aspect of Jesus' work. First, he, he, d- he describes Christ as our brother. Christ as our brother. We see this in uh, verses 10 through 13. Notice what he says. It was fitting. It was appropriate that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, he just talked in verse 9 about Jesus tasting death for everyone, uh, which for some, that Jesus even would become human, was shocking. Some heretics who denied that God would take to himself a body, Jesus only seemed to be human, that kind of thing. Uh, which developed later, but even in this point in, in the early New Testament church had, had its uh, proponents. Well, he says, no, it's fitting that he would make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought, I thought Jesus already was perfect. Well, he was in terms of his obedience to the law. He, he never sinned, and he talks about that in just a minute. But perfect here in the sense uh, of complete in the sense of fully equipped. Jesus became the complete Savior for us by identifying with us in suffering. didn't add to his deity. It didn't really change his humanity other than to flesh out his experience what we experience in this world, and by suffering. Suffering in general terms, that Jesus came and lived here in this world and experienced the kinds of things that we experience in this world. Uh, death, the death of people he loved or cared about. Think of Lazarus, for, uh, for instance. Um, people's cruelty uh, toward others around him and toward him. Um, being misunderstood, you know, and his own family thought he'd flipped his lid. Uh, the kinds of things we experience generally simply because we live in a fallen and sinful world. But certainly not just general suffering, but his specific, special suffering, his atoning suffering, uh, going to the things that were kind of suffering unique to him. Uh, in some ways, although some of it wasn't, physical pain, even crucifixion itself, was not unique to Jesus by any means. Um, but he was made a more complete, a fully equipped Savior, in that sense a more perfect Savior, a perfect Savior, uh, because of his suffering. And so this was appropriate, this was fitting that this should happen. Why? Why was it fitting? Well, he goes on to explain in uh, verses 11 and following. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. Now, I'm using the original ESV. I, I noticed as I was looking at this and studying this passage that the 2007 update changes that from all have one origin to all have one source. Literally, it just reads are all of one which doesn't tell you a whole lot, although that's what the writer of the Hebrews wrote, if you just translate it literally from Greek to English, and all are of one. One what? Um, 
Most translations don't render it that way. They do something like what we have here. All are of one Father. Uh, the New American Standard does give it literally, all are from one. And then in italics indicate the words not there. They put Father, which is very much an interpretation, because obviously if it just says all are of one, it leaves it open to, to interpretation. All are of one what? Well, that one is could be taken as masculine and maybe referring to the fact we're all of one heavenly father. Um, we're all part of God's family in that sense. That's true. Uh, could refer to a human source or human origin, all are of one man. Maybe Adam, although there's this real break from Adam to Jesus. Uh, Jesus did not inherit Adam's fallen nature the way that we do and, and fallen in his guilt. Uh, or even of Abraham, who does uh, make an appearance later in verse 16. He helps the offspring of Abraham. And Jesus was of the offspring of Abraham, uh, according to the flesh, although he had some, uh, some others like uh, Ruth who were brought into his family line as well, who were not physically from Abraham. Uh, and, and we are either of the flesh or the faith of Abraham. So maybe he's referring to Abraham. However, it seems to me... Uh, it more natural to take that one in the, in the neuter, grammatically neuter. It's referring to one thing. All are of one family. All are of one stock. Uh, which is related to the idea that we all have one heavenly father or we're all descendants of Abraham or something like that. But the point here is family solidarity. So when he says all are of one, the point is we're all of, of, of one family. We're all together. We're all part of the one people of God, one stock here. And so there's this solidarity. He shares in our family. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. We're all of one. And that's why he's willing to acknowledge us. The end of verse 11. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And he cites some Old Testament scripture. Psalm 22, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Again, I'll put my trust in him. And uh, then the second one in verse 13 is from Isaiah 8. Behold, I and the children God has given me. He's quoting these just to back up that Jesus is not ashamed to acknowledge us as his brothers. Now, if you were here this morning, you may recall I made much over the fact that uh, in Exodus 2, that when Moses goes out to see the burdens of his people, that the word there in Hebrew is the word for a brother. He went out to see what was going on with his brothers. In fact, twice that word is used there in verse 11, uh, Exodus 2:11. Um, is that is this meant to be an echo of that? He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Well, it is the same word, whether that's intentional or not. There's there's certainly a connection there. Moses despite his station, despite his Egyptian upbringing as the daughter of Pharaoh, was not ashamed to identify himself with the Hebrew people, and, and certainly in a much bigger way later than what we've seen even so far in Exodus chapter 2. In fact, he's willing to basically abandon his Egyptian position, which was substantial, to identify with his lowly, downtrodden, enslaved people. He puts everything on the line for them. And in so, so doing, he is a type of Christ who not only put himself on the line for us, going to the cross for us, but having won us to himself, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, which is 
if you think about it, rather astounding. I don't know if you've ever had a family member, you were kind of a little embarrassed to acknowledge that, uh, you know, this, this, this guy was related to you or, uh, you know, a relative or your brother or sister or whatever. Well, you look at us and you look at Jesus and it's a wonder he just doesn't look at us and say, yeah, looks vaguely familiar, but no, I don't think I know him. No, he doesn't do that. Just like Moses was willing to identify with his people, Jesus is willing to acknowledge us. And not just acknowledge us, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, or in case of you women, his, his sisters, part of his family. Pretty amazing thing. And if that's the case, then we should not be ashamed to acknowledge one another as brothers and sisters in Christ as well. So the first picture here is that of our belonging to one family. Christ is our brother. We as his brothers and sisters. He acknowledges us. He shares in our suffering. uh, And he shares in our family. And he acknowledges us as belonging to him. Well, the second image that the the writer of Hebrews uses here is that of Christ as our champion. Champion uh, in the sense of one who fights. On our behalf, remember when uh, the Philistines were squared off against Israel and Goliath comes out and challenges them every day, send out a man to fight me. Uh, He was calling for a champion from Israel, someone who would come out and stand on Israel's behalf and take him on as the champion of the Philistines. Well, the next picture is that of Christ as our champion. Look at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things as human body, as human nature, that through death he might destroy the power of the, or destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And there's another kind of connection or tie-in with what was going on in Exodus. A champion. He's, he becomes one of us that through death, namely his own, he might destroy the one who has the power of, the de- of death, namely the devil. And deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. What does that mean? Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Well, first we have to recognize ultimately Satan does not have, he's not the ultimate power of death. I mean, he is subject to the, to, to the Lord God Almighty. He is beneath him. And yet, Satan is the one who has the allegiance of people ever since Adam and Eve who chose to listen to Satan rather than God. And they are under the power of death. And they are uh, allied with and aligned with Satan in that. Well, how does Christ, through dying, destroy the one who has the power of death? It seems like Christ, in dying, would merely uh, be be subject to the one who has the power of death. Well, normally that's true. If it were you uh, or I doing the dying. But with Christ, in the first place, it's established that that death has no claim on him. It's striking. I was looking back in Luke 23. Four times Jesus is declared to be innocent. Now, we know theologically he never sinned. But before the Romans, three times Pilate emphasizes Jesus' sinlessness. 
This man has done nothing wrong. This man does not deserve to die. This man is innocent. And even the thieves on the cross, mocking Jesus and railing against him, and you know how the one then turns from that and asks Jesus to save him. And he says to the other, why are you mocking him? We deserve to be here, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now, they probably were saying more than they realized, because Jesus, in an absolute sense, had done nothing wrong. But death had no claim on him. But in dying, he died not for his own sins, but for ours. Because he was innocent, he was capable of bearing the sins of others, namely those who believe in him. And dying for them, he suffered in himself and extinguished the claim that that death had on us. And in that way, as our substitute, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and delivers us, all of us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, those in bondage to sin, those under the power of death, this lifelong slavery of sin and death. Sin, of course, because apart from Christ, we're under its power. And in Christ, that power is broken. Death, because it doesn't matter what you achieve or do or accomplish in this life, it all ends six feet under in the ground. And of course, only then with hell to follow. That's our slavery. Now, Israel and Egypt had that on top of their, their physical work slavery under the Egyptians because they were fallen as we are fallen. But the image I think there is being referred to here. That's that we share that deeper slavery with them. Slavery to sin, slavery to death, and it's that that Christ destroys. By his death, he destroys him who has the power of death. He suffers our guilt and dies for it. Death's claim, sin's claim on us is broken, and so we are set free, and Satan's power is destroyed. But then also, he sets free those held in slavery by the power of death. Verse 15, he mentions that, but then look at verse 16. He says, surely it's not angels he helps. Angels don't need that help, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You know, the irony in Exodus 2 is that God had made all these great promises, and here they were rotting away in Egypt. They were the offspring of Abraham, and they had grown in number. The promise was fulfilled, being fulfilled, had been largely fulfilled in Egypt, the promise of great numbers. But to what end? Well, they were just cheap labor for Pharaoh. Well, the same with us. Uh, Christ has broken the power of Satan. He's delivered us from this bondage, this slavery. He helps the offspring, the children of Abraham. As our champion, he went and fought that fight for us, and he won, just as David went out and fought Goliath and won. uh, Jesus is our champion. He went to the cross. He fought that battle. He won. He was raised on the third day. And uh, we are set free, and Satan's power is destroyed. So Christ is our brother is one image he uses. Another image he uses is that Christ is our champion. But third, Christ is our priest or our high priest. Look at verses 17 and 18. Because he does these things, because it's not angels he's trying to help, I guess if he were trying to help angels, he would take on the qualities of angels, whatever that might be. But since he's helping the offspring of Abraham, he had to become like the offspring of Abraham. Physical body, human nature, 
Verse 17, therefore, because he did these things, and because he was going to accomplish this, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. Like his brothers in every respect, save sin, but his humanity was exactly like ours. Now that's a mystery. He is fully God, doesn't cease to be God, is no less God, Although his glory is veiled, his powers are subjected to the will of his father in his state of humiliation. And he becomes one of us, made like us in every way. Not just seems to be like us, but was in fact one of us. So he can be for us a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As our high priest, one of the chief functions of the high priest was to offer up sacrifice of atonement. And for him specifically, the high priest, on the day of atonement, were the sins of the people. Well, that's what Jesus does. Since he's one of us, he can represent us, and he made propitiation, made a sacrifice that satisfied divine wrath for the sins of the people. Sacrifice just happened to be himself. But that's the function of the priests, was to offer up sacrifices for the sins of the people. And he's done that. So he atones for our sins as a high priest. But then, that's the Godward direction. But then he turns toward us. And there's not condemnation, but assistance, but help. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Temptation is a form of suffering. In the first Peter, first Peter uh, study of First Peter, we, we talked about suffering. And a lot of times that took the form of persecution. But there's other suffering that we endure as Christians, including the general suffering of this fallen world and the suffering of temptation. Encountering it, struggling against it, fighting it is a form of suffering. And that should not be minimized. And it's something that won't be present in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus suffered when tempted. It wasn't as though simply because he was the Son of God, he could say, well, that's temptation. No, I say no. The temptations were real. Otherwise, they weren't temptations. There was an attraction that Jesus in some way experienced. And and, and the experience of self-denial to say no. When Satan said, Jesus, command these stones to become bread, Jesus must very much have wanted in his humanity to do that. He was hungry. And he could do it in an instant. But he said no. He suffered when he said no. Just as we suffer when we wrestle against temptation. Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted. And because he was, because he did, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. And so when you are tempted, he knows what you experience. He knows what you are going through. Because he's been there. And so he is able to help you. How does he help us? The writer of the Hebrews doesn't really elaborate on that. Um, I'm trying to think, well, where biblically is that maybe expanded on? Um, 
one verse that came to mind, one of the earliest verses I remember memorizing, and maybe you too, is 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. How does he help us? Well, in one way there, uh, he doesn't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And another way is he does provide ways out. Like Joseph ran through the door when Potiphar's wife was after him. You know, there's sometimes we need to run through the door, maybe literally take off, get out of there, whatever it might be. Uh, but I suspect that's one way. Jesus does not abandon us to our temptations, to our struggles, to our disappointments, whatever it might be. But he helps us. So as our high priest, and that's the image that he's using here, he both satisfies God's justice, praise him for it, and he helps us in our sin. So Christ satisfies the penalty for sin, but he also has broken the power of sin and helps us in, uh, in dealing with sin in our lives. And as he goes on to say, he is, he's, a, he's a sympathetic priest toward us, as he later talks about. So we need to remember that. You know, when we're dealing with life, when we're dealing with suffering, we're dealing with temptations or even sin, there's no accusation but sympathy and encouragement and help from our great high priest. This is a, a tremendous passage in just talk, talking about the humanity of Jesus, his human nature, that at the same time does not in any way diminish his deity. And that's the point the writer of the Hebrews is trying to make. No, Jesus is not inferior to the angels because he took on a, a human body and a human nature. But he did that to accomplish the work his father had given him to do and in not only succeeding in that mission, but in bringing many brothers and sisters to glory through it, he is all the more superior to the angels. And so we give thanks to the Lord for Christ our brother, Christ our champion, Christ our high priest. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for Jesus, Lord, that he is all these things and more. Thank you, Father. It was for us here tonight who believe in him, who follow him, that he came and, and did what he did. And Lord, encourage us with that. Uh, lead our hearts to worship because of these things, to appreciate all the more our elder brother, who's like his brothers in every way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.